0: All right, good morning, everybody. We are going to jump in, uh, get started here before we lose too much time. Uh, if you've got a Bible or need a Bible, look. go ahead and turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Uh, that's where we're going to be be studying this morning. Uh, if you missed last week, let me give you a quick recap of, of where we are in Sunday school and what we're doing uh, for the next for the months of January and February, uh, we are together looking at uh, what is called complementarian theology. Uh, complementarian theology is really just this this framework that helps us as believers better understand how God created us as men and women and how we relate to one another as men and women. Good morning, you guys. Come on in. Uh, so, so what we are, are looking at, what we looked at last week. In this uh, beginning framework of, of complementarian theology is the creation uh, story in Genesis 1 and 2. And we saw how God created men and women. Good morning. Can you squeeze through? We're going to go to the left. This way. Yep.
1: This
0: way. We know how to make an end. You're, You're good. good You're good. Um, but we, we looked at Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And how God created uh, men and women. We saw in Genesis one that God created the the creation story found in Genesis one is a a story of complements. That there, in each day of creation, God creates two complementary items. He creates day and night. He creates the sun and the moon. He creates the waters above the earth and the waters below. He creates the earth and the, the seas. He creates. The, the birds and the beasts, he creates male and female. And so there's this complementarian creation, set setup throughout the story of Genesis 1. And we saw in Genesis 1 how men and women are created equally, both sharing in the, the image of God, both given the command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And then we looked at Genesis 2, which is a sort of zoomed in story of the creation of men and women, of male and female. How God how God gave Adam this command put him in a, a special place, gave him a task and then realized that he's alone and this is not a good thing. And out of all the creatures and all, all the things that, that God had made, there was not found a helper fit for for Adam. And so from Adam's body came Eve and he praises her. And we saw the, the compliments, the, the differences But one of the the main points from last week was that complementarian theology is not a question of competency. It is not a question of whether or not men and women can do the same thing, but it's whether or not men should do the same thing. So it's not a question of competency, but it's a question of responsibility. Who is supposed to do what? You're good. (laughs) So this morning... Well, last week we looked at God's, God's good design, how He created, how He ordained. This morning we are looking at how sin breaks it. And how complementarian theology, how the relationship between men and women has been broken and corrupted by sin. And so we are looking at Genesis chapter 3. If I can get somebody to read for us Genesis 3 verses 1 through 13.
1: She gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done?
0: The woman said, the servant deceived me, and I ate. Thank you. So here we have the story of the first sin. What was the sin that was committed? Okay, how? They ate the fruit. God said, don't eat the fruit. They ate the fruit. Sin. Where, so, so we know that that, if the action of eating the fruit is the actual sin event. But where does this sin event begin? Say that again? Okay, from the serpent? From the heart? Other thoughts? Eyes. Eyes? Desire? Desire. Right. Other thoughts? I, I want to I, say it again. Okay, lack of trust in God. So, so I ask this question because, as you can see, there's lots of different possibilities about where this sin actually began. And we know that sin is a process. We know that, that any sin, even our sin, doesn't simply begin and end with an act. It begins somewhere long before the act is actually done. And I, I want you to see where the act, where this, this moment fails, where there's a failure that leads to sin. And so to do that, we're going to backtrack. We're going to start at the, the biting of the fruit, and we're going to work our way backwards until we get to a point where we can say, here's where it started. So, the first if we're going all the way to the, the, the first step, what happens? What's the end? It's Eve eating the fruit? Or is there something that happens after that? She offered it to Adam. So we can stop here at at Adam eating the fruit, right? This is the the end of the the sinful act. It's Adam and Eve together eating the fruit, but Adam is the last one to eat. So then we back up. What happens right before that? Eve eats the fruit. Okay? What happens right before that? She desired it. it. The tree was to be desired to make one wise. What happens right before that? that the tree was yeah, she was looking at it. It looked like it was good to eat. This could satisfy. This could nourish. What happened right before that? Conversation with the serpent. What what happens? What where's the conversation? I think the conversation breaks down into two things. First, they talk or I guess when we're working our way backwards, they're talking about what? They're talking about the tree, talking about what it will bring, what that this will make you wise, this will make you like God. If you eat this, this fruit, if you taste this tree, what does the serpent speak right before speak about right before that? You won't die? What does he question? What God, said. what God said. Did God really say this? Did God really say that? Have we reached the, the beginning of the, of the process of this sin? No? Yeah. I keep thinking
1: back that Adam and Eve were joined together as one flesh, but here Adam and Eve is kind of operating.
0: Yep. We'll come back to that one. Go back to, to chapter 2, which we looked at last week. What happens before, before this? What, what's the end of chapter 2 about? Marriage. Marriage. Yeah, Eve is, made, Eve is created. Adam and Eve get married. What happens right before Eve is created? There was, no suitable helper. there was no suitable helper, yes. What about before that? God
1: told Adam to uh, send the garden and watch over it, and then commanded him not to eat of that tree.
0: Yes. Here's the beginning of the process. Here's, here's where this process of sin actually begins it's with the command. And God doesn't give the command to Eve. God doesn't give the command even when Eve is around. Eve is not yet created when the command not to eat of the tree is given. It's given exclusively to Adam. But with this command not to eat of the tree is also a command to work and to keep the garden. What does it mean to work and keep something? Maintain. Maintain. Take care of it. What else? Protect Protect it. Yeah. So it's Adam's job in the garden and not just in the garden. We can extend this to all of creation. It's Adam's job as as the the male created in the image of God. First and foremost, he is given the command, work and keep this garden, cultivate it, maintain it, take care of it, protect it and everything that is within it. And then he creates Eve and gives Eve to Adam as a part of this working and keeping, it is Adam's responsibility to lead, to care for, to uh, serve and protect Eve. And one of the ways that Adam is charged with protecting Eve is implied in this command. Don't touch, don't eat of this tree. And I think one of the ways that we see that Eve isn't, isn't present in this giving of the command is a misunderstanding that maybe existed when the... In Adam teaching Eve of this about this tree, because you notice in Genesis three when the serpent says, "Can you not eat of this tree?" and he said, and Eve says, "No, no, no." God said, "You can't even touch it." Well, God never said that, but Adam might have, right? Like it, it might have been something that Adam said that was like, "Don't go near it. Don't even touch it. Don't look at it. Because if you go anywhere near it or touch it, we're all going to die, and it's all going to be bad." Well, God never said don't touch it. God just said don't eat it. And so there's a a possibility, a possible explanation. It's all hypothetical at at this point on who who said what, if Eve just misunderstood, if Adam just told her wrong or, or where this came from. But ultimately, it's Adam's job to protect Eve, to teach Eve what to do, what not to do, to work the garden, to keep the garden, to lead and protect everything in the garden. And so sin begins with Adam neglecting his duty as leader and protector of Eve. Because where is Adam when the serpent begins speaking to Eve? Okay, but is he? When Eve eats the fruit, what does it say she does for Adam? Who was where? With her. Who was with her. Right? Eve doesn't eat the fruit and then run a couple miles away and go, Adam, look what I just eat. Have Eat this with me. No, Adam's with her. Throughout this entire conversation, throughout this entire scene, Adam is here. But you don't know he's here because he's quiet and silent. And in fact, the only time that he even shows up is when the woman says, here, dinner's ready. Right? And every woman said, yeah, I know men like that. Right, He's completely absent. He's completely silent until food is offered. And then he eats without question. I think think this this process, what I I want you to see from this is that the process of sin starts with the man, not the woman. Adam fails in his duty. But Eve is not innocent in this either. She is the one deceived. She is the one that the serpent comes to. And the reason, we can, we can make the, the argument that the reason the serpent comes to Eve is because the serpent is, what do we learn about him? He's crafty. He knows how to work things, how to deceive, how to manipulate. And so what he does is he doesn't just come to a woman because he thinks the woman weaker. He comes to the woman because the woman's not in charge. The woman's not the one with authority. And so, just by coming to the woman, the serpent is trying to undo what God has created. By coming to the woman instead of to the man, he is undoing, he is undermining the hierarchy, the structure, the, the creation ordaining that God has given. Well, she's naked, better look at than <laughs> that. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just leave that one alone.
1: Well, you did all that. We have no Are other this or
0: We have no other evidence in Genesis of other creatures talking.
1: Right. And I wonder if Adam heard or if he was just nearby. Or yeah. Well, because Eve was not there when God gave the command, mm-hmm. It seems reasonable in my mind. Yeah.
0: And and, and that's I think that's what we see taking place in the story is a breakdown of and the reason I say Adam fails first is because this is a breakdown of his leadership and protection and provision. If he's there, which we can safely assume that he is, and here's the conversation that takes place, which we can safely assume he does. He does nothing to protect, to correct, to guard, to work or to keep the garden as he's been commanded to do. He simply lets things happen. He becomes passive. He sits back and lets things unfold while the woman then leads and takes command and leads them down a terrible path of, through deception of the serpent. Instead of Adam leading his wife and caring for his wife and protecting his wife and providing for his wife, he just lets things happen. It's not gonna work. Yeah. Yeah. And immediately we see that the very first effects of sin is not on the relationship between man and God, but it's on the relationship between man and woman. Because what happens immediately when they eat the fruit? They're ashamed. ashamed. They both look at each other, realize I am naked and you can see me, and they cover themselves up. They realize they've sinned. Yes. And then God comes into the picture. Comes walking about the garden as he's prone to do and accustomed to do every day. And Adam and Eve hear him coming. And what do they do? They hide. More shame. Now the relationship between man and God has been broken. And we see the effects of it. But what happens when God begins questioning? Who's he come to first? Adam. Adam. All right, Adam. I put you in charge of this place. I put you in command. It was your job to to do this. I gave you this command. Don't eat this fruit. Why have you done this? And Adam, being the kind and wise and gracious provider and protector he is, says, This was all my fault. I did this myself. What's he say? Doesn't even give her a name. He says, It was that woman you gave me. It was her fault. I didn't do this. Right. This is this is Adam again forsaking his role as leader and provider and protector. He is the one who is is supposed to step in and say, blame me, put it on me, kill me. But instead, Adam knows what comes. What's the what's the price of disobeying God? God told him the day you eat of it, you will die. And he says, she did it. Kill her. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) he throws his wife under the bus instead of protecting her, instead of providing for her, instead of stepping in front of the bullet. He puts her under the bus and says, not my fault. It was hers. And the woman's no different. She then passes the blame on down the line to the serpent, which leads us into the curses. God hands out punishment. He hands out curses, one to the serpent, one to the woman, one to the man. What is the curse to the serpent? Somebody read verse fourteen and fifteen.
2: The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel.
0: Thank you. So what's what's the curse given to the serpent? Crawl on the ground, become a dust eater, and be hated. And be hated, yeah. What is it? I think there's a, there's an underlying meaning to you shall eat dust all the days of your life. It's more than just crawling around on your belly. Who is made of the dust? Yeah. He tells the serpent, and we know from Revelation who the serpent really is. He tells Satan, you shall be a man eater for the rest of your days. Your purpose now will be to destroy mankind, to consume them, to lead them into destruction and to eat them. But within the curse to the serpent comes the promise, the the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel ever preached. In chapter 3, verse 15, here's the promise of Jesus. The woman shall give birth to a son, and that son is going to crush your head. He's going to defeat you. You'll bite him, you'll strike him, you'll hurt him, but you will be the one who is defeated. What about the curse to the woman? Somebody read verse 16. Yeah.
1: To the woman To
0: your husband, that he shall rule over you. Yeah. So in each of these curses, and I, I didn't bring it up in the serpent, but I, I do want to bring it up here. There's a there's a curse on two areas of their lives. One area is in their purpose, what they are called to do, and there will be there will be frustration and pain in your purpose. The other one is in their position. So we see it in the serpent. Your position is on your belly. Your purpose is now to, to attack men and be hated. What are the, what's the what are the punishments on the purpose and position of the woman? Okay, which one is that, purpose or position? Okay.
1: And she'll be underneath. She'll
0: be ruled by Okay. So is that purpose or position? <laughs> okay yeah other thoughts what's the what's the curse on her purpose? I would say the pain yeah. yeah and then the, the curse on her position is her position with her husband. her relationship with her husband is now strained. Now we'll, we'll break this down a, a little bit I the I want to focus more on the the position curse more than the, the purpose, but let me be clear in this. A woman's purpose is not defined and confined to the realm of raising children and giving birth to children. But one of the punishments that God gives to Eve as the future bearer of life for all humanity, after all, that's why she is named Eve, because she is the mother of all living. But God says, in order to give birth, in order to bring life, in order to bring newness into this world, you will hurt for it. And moms, you know this very well. He did a good job. He did a good job. It was a hard punishment, right? It's, it's not easy. And, and the pain is not confined to those few hours of labor and delivery. I mean, I think that's what the, the second line, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. But then he says, in pain, you shall bring forth children. There's an implication there from the moment of conception to the moment of delivery is a nine month process of pain. And not only that, after that child is born, who suffers pain when their children hurt more than anyone else? who suffers the pain of raising children the burden of raising children of weeping for their children more than the fathers i'm not saying the fathers are immune to this this pain but the fathers pain is nothing it is a fraction of a mother's pain and so as uh, as women as child bearing there's punishment pain in your work frustration in your work kind of makes makes you want to Think about what it would have been like had they never sinned. What would labor and delivery have been like for Eve had there never been the fruit? (laughs) Because we can't even think about what labor and delivery looks like without associating it immediately with pain. But then there's this this curse for her position. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Does any, anybody else have a different translation of that section of the verse? Yeah. American Standard. And it says your desire will be for your husband. Okay. Your desire will be for your husband. And he shall, but it still says that he shall rule over you. Yeah. Any others? That's what the NIV says too? Yeah. So that's what the Hebrew says. Your desire shall be toward your husband or for your husband. But he shall rule over you. And really, this is a hard thing for us to understand. What does it mean for, for the wife to, be, to have a desire for her husband? After all, wouldn't that be a good thing for her desire to be for him? But to, to understand it, this word desire in Hebrew only, only comes up two other instances in all of the Old Testament. One is in Song of Solomon, chapter 7, verse 10. I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. Beautiful picture of the relationship, a good relationship between a husband and his wife. But the other place that this word appears, you don't actually have to look very far. It's likely even on the same page as you're currently on. It's in Genesis chapter 4. Look down at Genesis 4, verse 7. Because I think this verse helps us better understand Genesis 3, verse 16. Genesis 4 is the story of Cain and Abel. Abel brings a sacrifice, Cain brings a sacrifice, God approves of Abel's, but dis- discounts Cain and Cain is angry. He gets jealous. And in verse 6, God says to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? In verse 7, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. And here's the, the exact same verse. Its desire is contrary to you or toward you or for you. But you must rule over it. Same exact phrasing. Same exact words. Different context. So you can understand from the story. From this, this verse that God gives to Cain. What he is telling him. Is that sin has a desire for him. For Cain. Is this a good desire? What is this a desire for? What is sin's desire for Cain? What does sin want to do? To rule him, to destroy him, to bring him under its power and dominion. But God says, but you must rule over it. You must be the one with authority. You must be the one that has control over it, or it will consume you and destroy you. So that's the, that's the idea. Here's something that has a, has a desire for you to rule over you, but you must rule over it, Cain. So now we can go back to Genesis three sixteen. The woman has a desire for her husband to rule over him, to dominate over him, to sit in, his, in authority over his life. But he will rule over her. Curse of position. God says to the woman... You were created to be under the authority of your husband. You were created to be under the authority as a helper to your husband, to Adam. And now you will hate him for it. Because you will want to rule over him. But he's going to rule over you. Here's, here's why complementary theology is so, so difficult and painful. Especially for women. And I'm not picking on women. I, I think that it's just It's a, a reality. Women don't like the idea, and men don't either, but but women don't like the idea of giving authority to a man and saying, he rules, he's in charge over you." I mean, if we, if we took a, a poll of, of our wives in the room, how many how many wives would would actually like to say that eight days a week they enjoy submitting to the leadership and authority of their husbands? They never push back, they never try to 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 rule, they never have authoritative questions. it is they are completely fine letting the husband do, do it all. I don't think any of our wives would, would agree with that. I, I think the, the, the reality is, is one of the things that happens in this curse is that a woman's desire, a wife's desire, is for her husband. She wants to be the one calling the shots. She wants to be in charge. She wants to be the one over the house. But it's the husband's job. And so what happens when you have two people vying for the same position when only one can do it? Conflict. Right? And this conflict, because of sin, ends up revealing itself in one of two ways. When God says he shall rule over you, there's a very likely possibility, and we, we see it all too much, where the husband then becomes abusive. Instead of ruling graciously and gently and, and lovingly, he becomes a dictator in his home. And anyone who steps out of line gets the back side of the hand. Because he is given the authority to rule. And rule he will. The other side of this coin is when a woman desires to, to leave the home. Instead of the husband trying to fight her for his position, we do what Adam did in the garden. All yours, my dear. And we sit back and we become passive. And we are completely content to be quiet in the corner until dinner is ready. And both of these end in broken homes. Both of these end in in hurtful, troubling, sinful situations. A husband who rules with an iron fist is no more fit to lead than his wife. And a wife who leads, through whether through manipulation or coercion or just domination, is no more fit to lead than her passive husband. And so there's a curse. Women, you will want to lead, but you will not be able to. There's frustration there. What's the curse to the, the husband? Verse 17 and 18 and 19. Somebody read that for us.
2: Is the ground because of you? In pain shall you eat of it all the days of your life. Thorn of cisterns shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken.
0: Thank you. Same two two arenas of punishment. A punishment of purpose and a punishment of position. What is the punishment to Adam's purpose?
1: His His
0: work will be hard. God told him that it's your job, it's your purpose to work and to keep and to tend the garden. To cultivate the land. To be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Subdue it. And now God says, Adam, that job is going to be a thousand times harder than you ever imagined. Because now there's going to be thorns. And now there's going to be pain. And you're going to sweat, and you're going to work, and you're going to plant, and you're going to get nothing in return for it. And it's going to be hard and frustrating. What about his punishment of purpose? Or, sorry, of position? This one might be a little bit harder, but it's there. be dust Adam and all of mankind we were created for eternity we were created to live forever and created to be in the presence of God forever and now being created with a a, eternal eternity shaped hole in our heart as Ecclesiastes teaches us we are created with this eternity shaped hole we now return to the dust And creatures who were made for eternity now fade into nothing because of death. And we see this all the time. We don't even have to look at death for this. I mean, even this week, Nick Saban, coach of Alabama, one of the greatest coaches, if not the greatest football coach of all time, announces his retirement. And less than three days later, someone else is sitting in his chair. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. The best you can ever hope for is that maybe someone will remember you. But you will not live forever. And in all of this, in all these curses that God gives on the serpent, on the woman, on the man, all of this is to is to show that sin has broken how we relate to one another. And what we're created for, and what we were created to do, and all of these things have been broken and twisted. And especially our relationship with one another between men and women. It's broken. We struggle. We fight. We we see things differently. We argue. We we ignore. We get passive. We get too aggressive. All of it. The ways that we relate to one another are broken because of sin. But within this, it would be a failure on my part to, to teach this and to show you the effects of sin without showing you the hope of resolution. Where does this get resolved? How does this get fixed? Okay. Where do we get the power and the ability to repent? Because it doesn't reside in us. Christ. Yeah. It's the, it's the Genesis 3.15. We're, we're waiting for the, the one to come who will crush the serpent's head. And come, he asked. And now in Christ, for us as believers... While we still deal and struggle with the presence of sin and we we wrestle with what sin has done, we understand that we have been freed from it. And so as husbands and wives and as men and women together, we relate to one another and we can relate to one another in God-honoring, unsinful ways. We see this in the New Testament, specifically in Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, Husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. He is reframing the creation ordinance of how husbands and wives are to relate to one another. And here in this picture, we have a picture of Christ and the church. Because husbands, it is your job to lead. It is your job to to lead and to govern and to, to rule over your family and over your home. Not with an iron fist, but the picture of leadership that we get by looking to Christ is a leadership that lays down. This is why Paul says in Ephesians 5, husbands, lay down your lives for your wives, as Christ has done for the church. And I don't know of many husbands that will struggle with this command. I, uh, Dr. Akin, one of the, the presidents of the seminary that I, I attend, he, he has said over and over again, he says, there is not a single husband I know who would not take a bullet for his wife if the situation arose. But Paul's not asking if you will take a bullet for your wife. He's asking if you will do the dishes for your wife. He's asking if you will turn off the game and help out around and and you will vacuum the floor because your wife needs it and wants it vacuumed. This is what it means to lay down our lives for our wives. It means setting aside our ambitions, our desires, our dreams and saying, I'm setting these down so that I can love and serve you. That's what it means to leave. That's what it means to to rule and to, to leave with authority. It means to lay yourself down for the good of everyone in your realm, your wife and your children. Wives, Paul has commands for you in Ephesians 5. Wives, submit to your husbands as the church submits to Christ. We as the church, we understand that we are not the ones in charge. We are the body of Christ. No one here is the head. Even I, as the pastor of this church, am not the head of this church. I am part of the body, as each and every one of you are. Because Christ is the head, and we submit to him and to his leadership. We trust and we we understand that his rule is what we, we submit ourselves to. Wives, you are called to submit yourselves to your husbands. And submission is not a bad thing. Submission it means that you trust that this is how God has ordained it. That God has brought your husband into your home to lead you. That doesn't mean that this is perfect. Husbands will fail to sacrifice. Wives will fail to submit. Things can break. Things can hurt. Things can come undone. But the beauty of the gospel in all of this is that there's grace for it, there's forgiveness for any and every failure. Any time a wife tries to overrule her husband, there's grace. Any time a husband becomes passive or or tries to lead too aggressively, there's grace and forgiveness. Sin has broken our relationships. I hope you see that. And in that breaking, there's a curse. There's a a problem. that these relationships continue. We struggle in this sometimes. But Christ has died to redeem us from the curse of sin. And that means all of the curse of sin. Including the breaking of our relationships. Alright. Questions. Comments. Thoughts. What you got?
1: I know sin break, breaks it. <clears throat> but can you address the wife. submitting to her husband. Who's either passive or abusive.
0: So your question is. Should a wife always submit to her husband. Regardless of whether or not the husband is. <clears throat> Worthy of submission. Um, there might be lesson. Yeah, I, I think it is. I will get, but I don't want to just pass over it because I think it's an important thing. Here's, here's the reality. You will not find a husband on this earth that is perfect and worthy of, of your submission as a wife. No husband's ever going to be perfectly worthy of it. But we don't submit because the husband is worthy. We don't, we don't leave because the the wife, we don't, husbands don't lay down our, our lives for our wives because she looked really pretty today. Right? Like there's, it's simply positional. Because of who he is, because of who she is, the positions matter. Now, that being said, I do think that a wife should submit to her husband whether or not the husband is worthy of it. However, that is not a call or an excuse For a wife to be to continue living in a dangerous situation. There's there's never a good I've there's so much damage that has been done by this, but pastors who tell wives who are in abusive homes to stay and submit to their husbands because that's their duty, they're idiots. No no wife should be forced to stay in an abusive situation where her life is in danger because she simply chose to marry a moron. But the reality is, is that where there's not abuse, where there's not a threat to life, it may be hard. It will be hard. Not a maybe. It will be hard. Wives should always submit and husbands should always lay down and sacrifice. Always. Good question. Others?
2: I think
0: I agree. Uh, In February, one of the Sundays that we're going to spend time on is confronting some cultural lies of men and women. And and I want to look at everything from things like that, the breakdown of the family unit, why it's important. Uh, I mean, you can look at the numbers themselves and see that in homes without a father, the child is far and above more likely to end up dead or in prison than a home with a father. That's not coincidence. And it's not saying that the mother fails in leading. Because every mother loves their children. Every mother wants their child to succeed. I don't know of any mother who's completely okay with their child growing up in prison or dead. But there's something to be said about the fact that when a a father is there, things are different. And I want to look at some of those things. I want to look at some transgender debates and things that, that are becoming more prevalent so that we understand... That it's not just a laughing matter. It is a laughing matter to us at times. And we can laugh it off. But we need to understand why this is a problem. Because it's a growing trend in our culture. And God speaks to it. And we need to know how. So that's the, that's the plan. Next week we will look at what it means to be a, a man. And it, because I, over the next two weeks we're going to do what does it mean to be a man. And then the following week will be what does it mean to be a woman. And, and Paige is going to help me and co-teach with me on that Sunday. Um, But the the reality is that Because we are created male and female That as a man I am a man to the very core of my being That man is not something that just sort of Partially describes me or describes me in some things But not in everything No, I was created as a male And therefore I am a male through and through And I want us to look at what does that mean? What does it mean that God created us males? What does it mean for us to be men? And then the following week, we'll do the exact same thing, but with females. That you are a female through your entire being, all the way down to your very core. You are female. What does that mean? And why is that a good thing? So, that's the plan for the next two weeks. I uh, hope you'll you'll come back and join us. If you have any questions that didn't get answered, feel free reach out. Talk to me before, after worship. Send me an email text. But thanks for coming.